Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. We prayed, we played. We prayed, we played. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Catholic Stuff. You should know. Back again, man. Here we are. Here we are. This is Father Mike. This is Father Sean. Does that go backward? Aren't you supposed to introduce yourself first? Uh, we usually maybe. do. There's a host who picks a topic and then also runs kind of like an MC of the episode, right? That's ideal, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've kind of hijacked this. It's <laughs> you your, can hijack us. That's okay. Your topic, brother. Hey, I, we were just talking about how in this map of Roman Empire uh-huh. between Julius Caesar and Diocletian, that there is a section called Troglodyte Country. That's right. And then we looked it up. You're a troglodyte. And it turned out that a troglodyte lives in a cave. I thought it was a person who... I thought... The word, the way that I've heard it used is simply that it's a person who doesn't know how to use technology. Yeah. So they are kind of primitive or whatever. But it got me thinking, um, Would you, do you consider yourself a troglodyte as in terms of live in a cave? And would you like to be a tr- uh, maybe I'll ask this way, and then I'll come back to that. <laughs> Did you see into the wild? uh no, but I've read the book, yeah, okay, so that's even better i I have not I've only seen the film, but Christopher McCandless is it Alexander Superstramp yeah, right. um is that a romantic idea to you or the opposite? So we watched it at when I was living at Christ the King mm-hmm. And all of the Anglo guys were like, "Man, I wish I could do that. Just get off the grid, live, the, you know, live bare hands and, right. and out in nature, and you know, subsistence, kind of hunt my own food and everything." Right. The Hispanic guys that were there were like, "Was that a horror film? That was awful. <laughs> that was the scariest thing ever. Why would you want to be away from people, away yeah. from city, away from technology?" And it was like I mean I think I mean genuinely sincerely. Now I'm not saying that like as a, a necessarily racial stereotype. It would just yeah. happen to be those guys who were like, no way, that has absolutely no interest for me. In fact, yeah. that looks like the worst thing ever. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think there's something captivating about it. Of like, I want to go out. I want to be like in nature and not have to worry about with like the the stresses of life. Can you imagine that? Like never having to answer an email ever again because you just, right? When he left, like he left, like he burned his money. He literally had nothing. He was living completely off grid. Now, I'm a troglodyte, man. His 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 story ends in tragedy, but there's something to like, if, if troglodyte literally means cave dweller, you know, one who lives in a cave, a hermit in that sense, there's something beautiful to that if it's in the Christian mindset. Oh, really? I think this whole, well, yeah. I mean, we have the Hermetic tradition, Right, the church. So desert you have fathers. to. I mean, I think I naturally <laughs> like the idea, and it's actually the Christian thing that keeps me around. It's like oh, that's funny. It's like Saint Paul. You remember just recently he said, um, "I'd rather go and be with Jesus, mm-hmm. but I'll stay for your sake." Yeah. Now that's not, I. I'm, I don't mean to sound arrogant or something, but I actually think I'm. I'm more of a troglodyte. Like yeah. I would rather, I I like the idea of I'd get a little cabin or a little house in the woods and just live, just live either on my own or with a small family. But at least I think I would have seen myself do that had I not gone into seminary at 18. Yeah. Because I like, I like that idea. 
Totally. And I love times when I'm in the wilderness, at least for a few days, yeah. a couple of weeks. It's great. I'm going on silent retreat sometime this fall, and it'll be great. I'll be up at a hermitage, Patrice Corday. Yeah. Get to be out by myself. Not have Trapping? to worry about anything. You get a trap and I hunt? should trap. I don't know how to trap. I don't know. I've never hunted before. True confessions with Father Sean. Never hunted. Never grew up hunting. Uh, I love outdoor adventure. I love backpacking. I love camping. I love being out in nature. But never got into hunting. Okay. So you were saying it needs to be connected to the Christian. I think so. What does that mean to you? Well, I think the church, um, I keep saying church fathers, the desert fathers, they went into the desert once they have mastered the communal life. Mastered might be a strong word, you know, but they lived the common life. They lived in a monastery. Oh, I see what you're saying. And then they went out into the desert to have a more simple life maybe, but more so like um, the hermetic life with the Lord, like just being with the Lord out in the desert. Prayer and penance. Prayer and penance. And there's now, a very I thought sim- it was the other way. Thing. I thought it was like the her- hermetic tradition started first and then so like folks like saint basil said that's well, true yeah. how can i be a christian if i have no no one's feet to wash you remember that one yeah so like i think saint that's Anthony actually right the that, that the desert fathers come first and then the monasteries start to be built up right saint benedict which is what sixth century <clears throat> so i think there's something true to that however i don't think you can go into the desert unless you've actually lived in society, right? Unless you've lived with brothers, unless you live with people. Yeah. Some of them, I think, I'm not positive on this. I'm, you know, this is the problem. Sometimes you just speak your mind and you might, <laughs> you're going to get fact-checked or whatever. But some of them, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the Desert Fathers were married at one point, right? And then, you know, they become They uh, take widowers. their family out there or go, oh, No, I, I think they become saying. widowers or something. There. Yeah. And then they go and they just, they pray. And they, they in a sense, like they want to be a, a monk, you know, and monasteries didn't exist in the same way they do today. So I think, um, but you don't just start there, right? Like the Christian journey starts in common, in community. And then when it's like, I want a more simple lifestyle, that's when I go out and do it. They also, at least as far as, far as I understand, I'm like with you here. I'm just talking, even yeah. though I don't know for sure. But, um, they would have people come out to visit them, you know. People would come mm-hmm. out to get advice from a hermit, right? Like a spiritual father or something like that. And people would bring food, and so, like those pillar saints and the ones that are, who are out in caves, you could go and um, consult with them. I just read this book, Loris. Have mm. you seen that? I have. I've never read it. At, at one point, it's this, fiction, right? It's fiction. Yeah, it's really you know fascinating and has really stuck with me, but. At one point, um, the Excuse protagonist me. becomes a holy fool. Another point, he becomes a hermit. Mm-hmm. But some significant scenes happen while he's people are traveling out there to ask his advice and get his prayers and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. he's a holy man. Yeah. He's thought to be a holy man out there in the cave. Yeah. And that also that movie, The Island. The Island. The Russian one. Ostrov. Ostrov. You know it. Uh-huh. Isn't that a great show? Uh, oh, really? You even uh, you, you got to Ostrov right away. I you thought it was good. It it's it's a hard movie to get through. I don't know. It's just kind of long and quiet and intense. Gray. And I fell asleep during it. I would suggest that everybody goes out and sees the island, and then you, um, 
well, I don't want everybody to write in and <laughs> write in like emails. I don't read the emails. The emails get collected and siphoned out. So, um, I well, I just recommend you go and forget Father Sean. He has like bad judgment, and he was drowsy that day anyway. I definitely was drowsy that day. It's it's a fascinating night. movie. You'll never see anything like it. I should rewatch it. You could see. I mean, fine. You'll be entertained by Batman or whatever you love, Batman. Fast and Furious. But you you could see all of those hundred of hundred of the same movie, and yes, it would be entertaining. Mm-hmm. But it's like Tillamook cheese squares. <laughs> you love those Tillamook cheese squares. <laughs> they're so, they're so good. Funny. Father they're Mike comes over to our house. You can't do it over and over. We had this event, so you know we had whatever, um, all these like what do you call those uh, platters? Oh, <laughs> charcuterie right? boards. Charcuter- That's what they're called. We had all these charcuterie boards, and, and then we platter. had the meat and cheese platter. So uh, we had all these, yeah. Tillamook cheese squares, but they're charcuterie's like charcuterie's in. They're like buttery and they're like delicious, and there's probably a lot of fat in those cheese. Sharp cheddar. Sharp, sharp, sharp cheddar. cheddar. Sharp cheddar. Sharp cheddar. It's so good. Mm. Mm. Mm, good stuff. Well, speaking of the Desert well, Fathers. Speaking of charcuterie. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of charcuterie boards, um, today I actually want to talk about the Church Fathers. Not necessarily oh, the wait, Desert Fathers. Well, we're still on banter. Uh huh. Can I ask what the deal is with um, Father Michael Olo coming into town? I'm going to spoil the surprise to set it up so that people will listen <laughs> because people get really excited about Father Michael Olo. Olo. So what's the story? He's coming in in October. So uh, Olo, he typically doesn't text us until the day of. So this is That's actually true. shocking. He just shows up and so knocks on your door. He, right, Father Michael O'Loughlin, he um, used to be out here, kind of an honorary uh, companion. He is a Byzantine Catholic priest, and uh, he used to be on this podcast. He used to be one of the four hosts, and then when he got assigned to um, Los Angeles by his eparch, by his bishop, um, for his, you know, diocese, his eparchy, uh, he got assigned out to LA, but his family still lives in Denver, so he, you know, frequent, I I shouldn't say frequently, it's going to make him look bad. He comes here to town fairly often. But when he does come, it's always like the day before or the the day of, like at 10 a.m. he'll text us and be like, hey, brothers, I'm in town. Do you have a place I could stay tonight? <laughs> and I'm like, leave it to Olo. But this time yeah, he, dude, he just... he's planning in advance, which is shocking. And he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? Uh, you know, October, you know, whatever. He's coming out for a week. Uh, first week of October, I believe. So he'll be out in a couple weeks, a week and a half. So we're going to try to catch him and... Yeah, get it. Get to podcast with he him. May or he may or may not be on the podcast. Man, he loves podcasting. Oh, he does. Okay, so we're gonna try to get him on. Yeah, hopefully. Well, this was a, a dumb exercise. Then me no, annou- think, announcing something that might, I think it'll work may or may not happen. I just don't want to guarantee. I mean, it's like the subjunctive. You know, you always talk in the subjunctive. Would that it happen? Whoa, hello. May that it would happen. Would that it would happen? Wow, you lost me. I'm no grammarian. Whatever, you speak like 10 languages. I am a grammarian. <laughs> you're like and the subjunctive. You're like, yes, I remember learning the subjunctive oh in Greek. Boy. It's my favorite mood or tense or whatever it's called. We should, we should, we should keep going on this podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, go on. Would that it may happen that Olo Do you know what Goransky used to say? Don't live in the subjunctive. I like and that. I live loved, in reality. I love it. Yeah, don't. 
don't live in what I ought to be doing. What should I be doing? And mm. No, live in reality. I like that. Here I am. Here I am, Lord. I come to do your will. God isn't wanting you to be somebody else. I got a question for you. Okay. When you say here I am, right? That's from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And is it? Well, yeah. It's used in the scripture. Is it here am I or here I am? Because I hear both translations and it's hard to know which one is which. I think it's both in a classic song from the <laughs> the Breaking Bread repertoire in the 80s. Um, here am I. Here I am. Hineni. Hineni. I'm going to go with Hineni, which is Hebrew. Here I am. Mm-hmm. And the knee, the knee at the end is I. So here am I, I'm going to say. Here am I, Lord. I come to do your will. That's it. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Here am I. Yeah. Here I am. What are we talking about? Here am I. <laughs> are we getting on right. to the topic? So t- today's topic. You, well, you just learned hinani. Hinani. Um, behold, here I am. Right? So that's what... Anyways, it doesn't matter. Okay. So the topic for today is, <laughs> speaking of the Desert Fathers, I want to talk about church fathers as well as church doctors and specifically ask the question, what makes a father a father and what makes a doctor a doctor? Uh, there's four marks for each of them, four criteria for both of them. So who do you want to start with, doctors or fathers? Well, I'm going to remember, um, I want to start with fathers. Fathers of the church? Because chronologically, mm-hmm. they are uh, set in the ancient history of the church, and the doctors are a broader category that's not stuck in the very old... I don't know, stuck is the wrong word, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a chronology to the fathers, and that helps us to set a, a limit, limits on either side. That's right. Just let's either go side. with the fathers. I don't know. I'm, either side. Where I'm the not fathers very start? Articulate. Where the fathers start? I'm not very erudite today. <laughs> uh, the fathers, I guess, technically, fathers of the church are a way of talking about. Um, theologians and important figures who laid the foundation kind of um found founding fathers mm-hmm. like like you remember the where they begin though the pilgrims you said, you the said pilgrims george washington you know ben franklin thomas jefferson are founding mm-hmm. fathers of the, the country so we have founding fathers that begin after the death of the apostles that's what i would that's know, what consider. i would say because the and, apostles i wouldn't call church fathers and then end in a disputed kind of question mark which i th- was i thought it was maximus the confessor but i don't even know that that's i don't know what well time. you google it we'll start with the four marks or four criteria for the fathers so this is what makes a church father it's important to to have these um right and the church fathers um they're important and when they speak they hold a weight because um well, we'll get to that in a minute um but essentially there's four marks four criteria that make a church father Number one, orthodoxy, meaning right praise or right worship. They have a right teaching. They teach the truth. Um, part of what made them be able to teach the truth or you kind of an understanding of this, right, is there's the deposit of faith that's handed on. And are they in union with that? Are they in union with the church? Are they teaching correctly? Are they teaching uh, rightly? Sometimes we don't always know uh, during someone's life, right? Sometimes people are condemned after their life. Um, like, so Origen, for instance, is not a church father, uh, for a couple different reasons, which we'll get to in a second, but he's not condemned. Well, wait a minute. He's not a doctor of the church. You, you don't consider him a church father? No. 
Really? I do not. Because he doesn't meet the four. I would call him a father, but not a doctor. He doesn't meet the four criteria. Um, Maybe he gets orthodoxy correct, but... Okay, we'll, we'll get you to better argue three. on another one. I would call him orthodox. We could get deep on this one. Well, my point with bringing him up, with up the question at this point, of, though, is he, is he orthodox? Is he orthodox? My point with bringing him up right now, though, is like he was condemned after he died, so he never had a chance to, um, you know, defend himself. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, in so you you could not be declared like a saint. You couldn't be declared. During your lifetime, mm-hmm. to be a father of the church, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a it's a category in hindsight. Exactly. So number or, one, or no, you, your orthodoxy cannot be judged until you all of your works are complete. That's what we're talking about. The orthodoxy. So in here's, here's sense, an example. Always, but here's a controversial example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas Merton. He was uh, he's pretty well. Uh, praised in his earliest work mm-hmm. and for the first, I don't know, long time in his, his career. He was a monk at the uh, Trappist Monastery in Kentucky and mm-hmm. was publishing very monastic things. Nearing the end of his life, he becomes more and more interested in Eastern religion mm-hmm. and then he starts to be criticized for being a syncretist. And by the end, you have a lot of controversy around whether or not he's orthodox. And right. in hindsight, I think he's, I, I think the judgment's a little too harsh, but he's being kind of ignored and kind of being sh- shadowed, drifting off into the shadows. Shunned, yeah. Theological history. But that just means like, okay, you couldn't stop halfway in his life and say, yes, he's orthodox, because you got to wait to see how right. his thought will play out. So yeah, now I, I could right. say, okay, Father Sean has been orthodox. I hope so. So far, so good. Not everyone would but say that. It's early. It's early. It is early. So number one. Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. Number two, mark of a church father, is holiness of life. I, oh man. That was a deep breath. I thought you were going to well, speak something. Yeah, I, I have an issue with the, the orthodoxy one for the church fathers as well. But this will be, this is a little too deep, I would think. This gets in deeply into fundamental theology. How do, you, how do you define orthodoxy when you don't have the church fathers? Like, what, do you, what do you mean? What's the, what's the rule against which they're being, being measured? Held. Like, what is Part theology? It, There's no system of yeah, theology that exists yet. That's a great question. Yet. So the only thing they could contradict is the scriptures, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I but think there's still some tradition, though. what if they the scriptures? Yeah, I think there's still some tradition, but part of um, the tension here is like there's a development of doctrine, as St. John Henry Newman would call it, that's that's developing. That's what does this all mean? They're wrestling with it. And I think um, whenever the fathers speak unanimously on an issue, we hold that with great weight, with mm-hmm. great reverence. Okay. Because what we say is the unanimous opinion, if you will, the unanimous um, kind of direction or theology of the fathers um, is often doctrine or dogma because of how it has developed through the century. And that's tradition being handed down. Um, Part of that's their proximity to Christ as well. But I think orthodoxy, what did we compare it to? Certainly, I think you compare it to other people in their time. Um, Are they in union? Are they in union with the church? Are they being so different and so radical that they're going off the rails, if you will? But again, like, I think the word orthodoxy, the way that we're using it today, we're judging in the past. 
which you think is okay to judge like, is this person a church father? Meaning like, is their life lived in a way that we say like, this is worth reading and this is worth um, kind of venerating and even worth uh, modeling, um, partly because of the holiness of life as well. Now, I say all that, but like there's also early Christian writers. So again, Origen, who's not a church father, but he's an early Christian author, early Christian writer. He's still worth reading, I would argue, right? He's one of the, probably the best scripture scholar in the early centuries. And without him, Augustine would not exist. Uh, Augustine gets a lot of his stuff, um, if not, well, I shouldn't say all of it, but a lot of his stuff from Origen. And Origen has a massive influence on the scriptural world. Uh, with regards to the spiritual sense, the in- interpretation of scripture. How do we understand that? And I don't think it's because he went off the rails per se. Like that's what, you know, he's different or anything. I just think um, he he may not have been always thinking in union with the church, but it's actually the third one that I think. I think he's orthodox. I think his biography is spicy and that's where he's kind of controversial. Sure. And then those who who took his theology and then ran in the wrong direction, um, turn out to be condemned as heretics. So they're obviously not orthodox. I wouldn't argue for sure. um, what will be called originists or originist heretics mm-hmm. to be anyhow orthodox. But sure. they didn't teach what he taught. They taught like an extension that they kind of hijacked. Okay, two observation or thoughts on this orthodoxy question in yes. the earliest time. Eventually you have a rule of faith. So mm-hmm. Nicaea... And before that, an apostolic creed. So that maybe is, you know, you could call that a rule sure. um, against which to judge orthodoxy. And and then just to mention that this wasn't like there was a system that developed for policing orthodoxy. That wasn't from the very start. Right from the start, you have John's epistles. You have Paul condemning people because they're teaching the wrong teachings, mm-hmm. you know? So... I don't want it to make it look like this idea of policing thought is somehow, I don't know, like mean and unchristian or hadn't been there and it develops or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just part of the reality is we've got, you have to evaluate who's, who's orthodox and who's not. Um, Okay. Even in 180, um, Irenaeus of Lyon, Mm -hmm. one of the church fathers, is um, writing a work called Against All Heresies. Right. And he's just naming one after the other of all these people who are not Orthodox and yeah. their leaders. That's a good point. Yeah. To think, okay, so <laughs> to think in union with the church, you know, yeah. Orthodoxy, right, right praise, right worship, right practice. The question, right I teaching. guess, yeah, the issue was like in hindsight, we have the whole collection, which gives us a sense that everybody was united. Correct. Well, you could have a whole, you know, Ephraim the Syrian probably lived and died without interacting with a lot of the Greek thinkers. Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, check yourself or whatever? Right. They're not like all gathered together in one college. Yeah. All right. The church still declares church fathers, you know, so, and it goes to these three points and it might not be, or four points. I don't think it's perfectly worked out always. And this is where like, yeah, history is messy and complex and can, and complicated at times, but you know, history is written by the victors as we like to say. Yeah. Well, and if if you say, okay, who do we consider right now? Who do we consider fathers of the church? Mm-hmm. This is a good definition. Yep. Right? Absolutely. So those are, those are the first two. Orthodoxy, holiness of life. The third one, approval of the church. Um, I don't know quite what that means, but I do think there's something to like 
again, are they thinking in union with the church? Are they a part of that greater body of the church fathers? Or, I mean, they wouldn't call themselves church fathers, right? But they, they would call themselves of like, these are the theologians of the time. These are the people we're working with. These are the, right? These are us. This is, you know, who we are. Um, are we in communion with that? Um, think of like Arius. Arius, the, the bishop who said um, Christ was not God, right? Um, that he was one of God's highest creatures, but he can't actually be God. Uh, the Arian heresy. Uh, he's not thinking in union with the church. And when the bishops come together, it's ruled that, no, 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 this is who Christ is. He's the hypostatic union, right? 100% divine, 100% human, right? That would be a great podcast to, to do sometime. What is the hypostatic union? And um, if you're not approved by the church, then you're not going to be a church father. So Arius, obviously, is condemned by the church. He's not approved. He is not a church father. Yeah. Yeah, just the recognition. And that maybe plays into the hindsight. It's like, well, um, it's hard to judge the orthodoxy in your time and place. But um, there's, yeah, the, the tradition judges things as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Just like it, with the um, canonicity of right. saints. You, there's been people who are promoted. And then you find out, ooh, ooh, they had some scandal in their life that right. people didn't know about but got, you know, skeletons. And... Uh, so you need that, that nod from the church. Yep, Plus, absolutely. here's the other thing about approval of the church. There are so many authors from the ancient world that identifying someone as a father of the church is actually helpful to limit the collection of you know, people saying, well, who do we point to for this sort of constitutional development of theology, mm-hmm. the, the basis, yep. so that not everyone... There's there's actually hundreds of writers that we have little evidence pieces of this and that, and they can be orthodox, but it's like they're not terribly important. Right. But the fathers are mostly important, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Fundamentally, um, one image that I love that we talk about the church fathers is like we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like. They have done amazing, amazing work. Why did you already sold me dwarves? <laughs> I Go do with like the dwarves. What did you call it? Dwarves standing. So on. yeah, this is from a guy named uh, Spidlick. I don't know his first name, um, but he wrote this book. And uh, in the introduction, he talks about the church fathers. In his introduction, he goes, "We are like dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants." I just love that image of like a dwarf, like we are dwarves, uh, because not necessarily that they were much smarter than us but more in the sense of like they had to work out in the first centuries of the church to your point of like, what is this scripture? And like scripture Mm. was just written and like how, like, and obviously what we'd say today is like, there's apocryphal work. So like they were probably reading those of like wrestling with it. Like, is, should this be included in the Canon? Like, and they started using different things in the liturgy and they started having mass and celebrating mass probably looking somewhat similar to what we have today because we know that from their writings, but also probably somewhat different as well. And like they were trying to figure it all out and like they led the church. That's why they're the founding fathers, right? Use that word. Uh, They led the church to where she is today um, in the orthodoxy and the holiness of life of that we're all benefiting from today. Like we are so tiny compared to like the great um, gifts and the great like, um, uh, yeah, gifts. I, I can't think of the right word right now, but intellectual and academic and, and spiritual gifts that they gave to the church. Like we're so small compared to what they contributed. 
Yeah, there's dwarves. A, there's a siphoning. <laughs> dwarves make me think of like guys with axes in caves, troglodytes, troglodytes in from, Tolkien uh, or whatever. Lord of the Rings. Um, there's a siphoning process or percolation of mm. um, of time that happens with time. So you think right now there's probably a thousand uh, priests who are podcasting right now, and they have interesting thoughts and everything. Mm-hmm. A lot of speculation on theology. But most of it won't stick around, you know? Mm. Who are the voices that'll stick around? I don't know. Barron, he's pretty good. Love Bishop Barron. Uh, John Paul II. Pray for you us. You know, in a thousand years, 2,000 years, are they going to be the most important voices, you mm-hmm. know? You have to be doing daring, pioneering work that is solid and considered uh, important and valuable and, you know, profound. Yeah. That stands the test of time. That's a good know? word, pioneering. Like yeah, they pioneered the times. I, I like that because they're really paving the way for the for the church to develop and grow. Yeah, uh, in a culture where um, Christianity wasn't even legalized until you know the fourth century, thirteen, uh, three thirteen, which uh, you know the Edict of Milan. So, and it's some crazy. of it's not just um, not just theology. So some some fathers are honored because they um, really set the foundations for theology. We're trying to work out, is Jesus God or man? Mm-hmm. Is God, what does Trinity mean? How do you fit the concept of three in one? So they're working that stuff out. Some of the fathers, like um, pre-Nicene fathers mm-hmm. that come right after the apostles, like St. Ignatius of Antioch or Polycarp, they are valuable in their witness as, as martyrs. And sometimes they're witness of, like, what are the rituals that are, Christians are doing? Like, how, what's the foundations for the sacraments? Mm-hmm. And their writings show us the way that Christians were acting as a community and mm-hmm. toward the greater, you know, society. So there's, it's just foundational people, right? The fathers of the church. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. But have different stripes. Also. And and we'll get to the doctors in a minute, like, because they're the ones who are honored for their specifically for like their teachings, right? Mm-hmm. Doctor, teacher. Yeah. Uh, good. So the four marks of of a church father: uh, orthodoxy, holiness of life. There must be approved by the church. And the last one is antiquity, right? So you were hinting at there this. You go. They have to be ancient. Um, that's why they call them the ancient, you know, fathers of the church. Antiquity, and it's interesting. The East and West have a different view here um, because there's the different kind of fathers of the church in the East and West. Um, Constantinople versus uh, Rome and just how that all kind of played out. Um, Greek speaking versus Roman speaking, uh, Latin speaking. Um, so the two different thoughts in the East, it's thought that St. John Damascene is the last church father. Okay. And he died I've around... I've heard him as yeah one of them too. And he died around 750 AD. Mm. In the West, on the other hand, it's debated between two people, St. Bede the Venerable, uh, who died around 735, or, or St. Isidore, uh, who died around the year 636. Um, so in the West, it's kind of debated who's the last church father. Is St. Peter church father, or is he kind of on the cusp into the medieval uh, Middle Ages, the medieval mm. kind of philosophy and development that happens there, or is he considered a church father? Regardless of where you kind of mark it, antiquity means uh, they're close to Christ. And again, they're developing these thoughts. And this is really important because the church fathers then, because they're close to close to Christ, like the tradition is just very ripe and it's very strong and uh, it's been passed on and handed down and they're closer to his teachings, um, right? And what's so beautiful, especially about the early, early church, it's like this person's a disciple of this person who is a disciple of one of the 12 apostles who is a disciple of Christ. Like 
three or four generations just connected to Christ. And of course, that's what apostolic succession is, literally. Um, but I can't imagine like Polycarp, a uh, disciple of um, John, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is a disciple of Jesus. Uh, and so it's just amazing how this plays out. Yeah, I was just listening to a YouTube video. I'm trying to I talk to this this dude, Willie, today, who is uh, Jewish, and he's dating a Catholic, and they're getting serious about marriage, and or at least talking about what that would look like. And so he's he, he was asking me about how these two traditions jive, and, and um, that's a whole another episode, I'm sure. But I happened upon, I was do, trying to find out on the YouTubes, and I happened upon a conversion story of this guy who moved from um, from being right, kind of like anti-Catholic Protestant mm-hmm. to becoming a Catholic, and his his journey passed through um, research into the fathers of the church because he was he wanted to know like what what originally what's mm-hmm. the oldest like what were what were Christians like around the time of Jesus rather than he know he knew he was passed on this tradition of Christianity that started in the Reformation yeah. at the beginning of the 1500s, mm-hmm. and that would be unsatisfying if you're an intellectual who wants to know the history and be rooted in or connected to that earlier time. Yeah. So he started reading what was published as these fathers of the church, and he was taken by it and kind of like, well, the Christianity I inherited was not what they were doing after the apostles, this sort of Bible thumping, you know, Bible quoting all the time, um, take Jesus as, as your personal Lord and Savior. Yeah. No, it was, it was very much about baptism and the community and ritual prayer and the mass and all these things that we, since the Reformation, have been considered very Catholic things. Yeah. But they've, they were, they're just very old, yeah. very Christian, very, you know, there's a continuity between them all. So I recommend that to anyone who wants to know more about what was Christianity like before Luther, you know, mm-hmm. um, the modern Christianity is very different than it was for the first few hundred years of, or at least denominations can be very different than it was yeah. um, soon after Jesus. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's also a great book called the four witnesses that goes through four church fathers. I can't tell you who they are at the top of my head. Um, and just like, what do they say? What do they talk about? And it's a great book to give um, in kindness towards a Protestant friend uh, of like, what does the early church say? And there's these four witnesses who lived it and they talk about, yeah, the church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic, the church is apostolic um, and how important that is. Yeah. So anyways, and, those... you know, Christianity was refined in this fire of being persecuted during the Roman, you know, ro- right. the spread the of Christianity. Yeah. And these communities that Paul had started and Peter and others. So it's important. I don't, I mean, regardless of whether or not you feel threatened by it or what, you know, it's not just a Catholic apology. It should be Correct. of interest yeah. to any Christian of like, what was Christianity like? Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So the four marks of a church father, uh, orthodoxy, holiness of life, they must be approved by the church and there's an antiquity to them uh, before uh, the eighth century, roughly somewhere around there. I think that that cutoff. Then mm-hmm. I was thinking about this. I think the cutoff is Charlemagne, eight hundred. Gotcha. Yeah, Charles then, the Great. Then you have this like unified Holy Roman Empire that probably became more homogenous. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the groundwork has been set, and yeah. now 
Christendom stars. That's a good insight. Yeah, huh? I like that. Okay, Charlemagne, there even though he's not a church father, that he's not a church father because he came after your boy Bede <laughs> and John Damasy. So next we get into the doctors of the church, and doctors of the church are not connected with antiquity, right? We've had doctors recently, um, well, I guess recently named by Pope Francis, even if they are a little bit older, like St. Hildegard von Bingen, but also St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, who's more contemporary uh, to us than um, than the church fathers would be. But anyways, there's, there's four marks and criteria to make a church uh, doctor, a doctor of the church. Not every father is a doctor, but a lot of them are, uh, a handful of them are. And then not every doctor is a church father, but a handful of them are as well. Um, so there is some overlap. So what makes a church doctor? There's some overlap to the first, um, for the, to the other criteria as well for the fathers, but here they are. What makes a doctor of the church? Four marks. First of all, orthodoxy, holiness of life. So those two are the same, and the next two are going to be a little bit different. The third one for a doctor is explicit approval. So it's not just like approved by the church. It must be even more explicitly approved. And I think that has to do with the fact that they're writing things and they're giving their uh, doctor, their their teachings out there as a doctor to say like, this is like the, the official teachings of the church. This is what's important. This is um, what matters. And if you're not explicitly approved, uh, you still could be holy. You could still have an orthodoxy of life, but maybe your teachings aren't as sharp as they need to be in order to be a doctor of the church. Um, so those are the fe- first three for a doctor well, of the church. Well, and you want to, like, you know, pick only so many particular um, voices. Just mm-hmm. like with the with the fathers, you want to have certain founders so you're directing people's attention. The Catholic Church is huge. It's got a long tradition, lots and lots of people, and a lot of brilliant writers and thinkers and that could probably qualify as doctors of the church. Yeah. Um, but... You have to be picked because the church wants to say, look at that, listen to that, just like the saints. There's a lot of people who are saintly, but we approve of and pick and sort of isolate and raise up um, certain particular examples because they're helpful for our time or for moving this or that kind of doctrine ahead. And right. um, So most of the doctors of old, like mm-hmm. the, the fathers of the church of antiquity, usually have some tie to a specific dogma or doctrine. Correct. Or they are dealing with just the biggest questions and are kind of like look to them in general. Like Augustine mm-hmm. is... Dr. Grace. Yeah, just look to him to, uh, to know anything about anything. <laughs> Grace right. is everything God. That's right. Right, and, and to your point there, it's not just like a specific time, but like what makes a doctor then is they're teaching... Um, radiates through all of like time in the sense that like this isn't just a teaching for them, but it's for the whole church into perpetuity, if I can say it that way. So the fourth mark then, this is really cool. The fourth mark is eminent erudition, right? To be erudite, to be smart, to be wise. Eminent erudition. I love that. Like it, it, it goes forth. I'm going to get that tattooed. <laughs> <laughs> On your forehead? Yes. Eminent erudition. Eminent erudition. It's kind of bold. It's a teaching that, that it's meant, you know, again, for everyone. So the four marks for a doctor then, orthodoxy, holiness of life, explicit approval, and then eminent erudition. Again, their teaching is not just meant for um, the fifth century, right? Or, or Augustine. Let's take Augustine. His teaching is not just meant for the fourth century or in the fifth century. It's meant for today. It's meant for us as well. And the things that he contributed, the things that he said, 
give us uh, deeper insights into the church, into the church teachings. Um, again, as the doctor of grace, St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, the doctor on the angels, uh, we read him for a lot of different things. And he gives us, uh, he's a brilliant mind. And I think it's important here to say, uh, can a doctor ever err in his teaching? Uh, yes, as long as they're not going against the you know the church obstinately um, or against the church just in general. Uh, for instance, St. Thomas Aquinas, right? The famous example of him is he got the doctrine or the dogma of the Immaculate Conception wrong. Um, and that's partly because he didn't understand how conception works the way that we understand it today. Um, he got the under, um, Immaculate Conception wrong, yet he's still a doctor. Sinful seed. <laughs> he's still a doctor because... Um, his teachings are erudite. He's erudite, and they emanate through the through all of history and and into the future as well. Yeah, another voice. I love you, Thomas. He's the uh, he's the master. Um, another example might be. Did you give Therese of Lisieux the little way? I have not talked about that yet, but I did say That'll that she it. is a doctor. Okay, there's. I just looked at. 37, 37 doctors uh-huh. of the church. So this is an isolated number. You know, if you think I wonder of how many all Pope the numbers Francis of, has say, does it, ha- does it say how many Pope Francis I thought has named? Therese was, was um, named by John Paul. Possibly, but I mean and like maybe Pope Francis has named like four or five in the last is it? five years or whatever. John of God. I remember he did that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I think w- he did Hildegard von Bingen as well. But... What I was I, the example that I like um, for this eminent erudition yes. is maybe ter, uh, Teresa of Avila. Mm-hmm. So her concept of the uh, mansion, the interior castle, yep. is something that is really like profound as an image and a help for prayer, and it's something that when you've sought to develop a mystical prayer life. She's a doctor of, you know, spiritual theology or spiritual life. When you've, when you've sought to explore that, you explore the, the chambers of your soul, how the Holy Spirit is working, how God speaks into us, and how we're, like, connecting with God, being purified morally, all of these experiences of grace. That image that she gives us and the, the description of her working through the rooms of the interior castle, it, it, you just hear it and you say, yes, right. that's what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. That's erudite. That's, it, it, it articulates like an artist, articulates the experience that we have that we have a hard time putting our finger on. Mm. And you can extend that back. You know, every Christian has been, you know, experiencing this mystical life of grace. Yeah. It's not just her time, like you said. It's not for the future. It's not her own personal perspective or experience. It's the experience of every Christian, mm. and she's named it and described it in a way that's like the church wants to keep pointing. You want to know what's going on in your soul? You want to know what spiritual theology? You want to know what the experience of grace and God in prayer is? Mm. Then, hey, listen to Teresa of Avila. Because she's the master. The master. I don't know what she's the doctor of per se. I don't know if every doctor has like, you know, angelic doctor, doctor of grace, um, whatever, whoever else there is. I don't know if all of them are named that way, but absolutely. And I think, right, the doctors and the fathers are saints and the saints become our friends. Like, don't just like 
right? There's the distinction that's often made is patrology versus patristics. Patrology is like the study of the fathers in the sense of like, where are they from? How old are they? What did they write? And like biographical, but patristics is more of like, these are my friends and like I'm, I'm dialoguing with them. I'm praying to them. I'm reading them. I think it's the same for the doctors of the church, like pick them up, read them. Uh, and I think it's too broad to like try to read all of them. Right. But if one strikes you is there's a story strike you, I think that's a saint choosing you to say, Hey, uh, I might be important for you. I might be able to pray for you. I might be able to help you. Would you, uh, pick up this book, right? The Lord uses that as a way to say like, Hey, I want to teach you through this saint. I want to teach you through this church father. Um, so don't be afraid to become friends with them. Um, it can be hard to wade through a lot of this stuff. Uh, one piece that I, there's been published little booklets of the, uh, the catechesis, the weekly catechesis that Pope Benedict did. Mm -hmm. I remember at one point he, he published the, or he said about every Wednesday at the catechesis for like a year or two. Right. He covered fathers of the church. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in two volumes. I have that book. It's very good. Actually. That kind of helps you, understand it and what i love about that book what augustine it can be really hard to read Mm -hmm. augustine is difficult to read and part of what makes the church fathers interesting is like they don't write systematically right because they're just like they're trying to figure it out and so when they write about grace or the immaculate conception or i guess that wasn't defined yet but mary in general like they're going to talk about it in homilies and in many different things that they write but it's not going to be like let's have one book dedicated to mary it's just all over their writings. Yeah. And so they're, they're a little bit hard to read if you're looking for a specific topic. But the, the book that Pope Benedict uh, now published from his uh, talks, from his catechesis, his Wednesday audiences, um, it, it, it covers both, where it's like, here's the life of St. Maximus the Confessor, and then here's three points of theology that he said yeah. and it's a phenomenal book that's I actually the, could, the textbook that we use for patristics class it's a nice reminder i'd like to i don't think i ever read it i'm just aware of it and maybe like looked here and there mm-hmm. lord my man like, i can go he's grab the it the original my catholic stuff he's the original the catholic, catholic stuff. stuffer man shout out to isn't Pope Benedict. He? isn't he he takes all these theological points and presents them and says this is the catholic examples stuff of saints that you should fathers. or should not know anyways i actually gotta get running here I got a meeting here in a couple of minutes, but uh, rapid fire. I got a couple of questions for you. I have one for you. Okay, go for it. Quiz. Who are the four um, Latin or the Western oh, doctors of the uh, church? Augustine. Okay. Jerome. Okay. Athanasius? No, nope. he's East. Um, Gregory the Great? Yes. Who's the other one? A, J, I no, can't Northern, remember. Northern Italy. Northern Italy. Ambrose. Yes. So the way I remember that is Ajag. I always remember it Ajag. I couldn't remember the other Yeah, a. good job. So the four great doctors of the West. Who are the four great doctors of the East? Do you know? No, I, I know it's ba- Basil is one. Basil, Gregory Nanzianzus. Oh, yeah. Um, Those are both Cappadocians. Who, uh, I don't know. Who Athanasius, else? I think, is the other one. And then I, I can't John remember. Damascene. Chrysostom? John Damascene. Da- um, Chrysostom? John Chrysostom. That's who it is. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Hey, we but got we might, it. We might be making fools of ourselves right now. <laughs> Whatever. Who knows? Um, who's your favorite church doctor? My favorite church doctor right now happens to be Ephraim the Syrian, the, Ephraim po- the, the Syrian. great poet and songwriter. Who is your favorite church father? 
Favorite church father is probably, um, right now I would say Justin Martyr, just because I I recently read something, he was talking about the mass. Nice. I'm teaching RCIA or what was formerly known as RCIA. (laughs) That was now OCIA and, um, back to RCIA credo at the cathedral. And I taught one on the mass and, the awesome. catechism lists a little excerpt from Justin Martyr. That's right. Which is really cool because it's like, okay, what was the mass like in the year 150? Right. And it's the closest it's we similar, can get. Yeah. And the, the picture is pretty close. Absolutely. Awesome. What about you? You can't just ask me your favorites um, and then not. My favorite church father is St. Augustine. Uh, the Confessions, his book, The Confessions, changed my life. Absolutely love that book. My favorite church doctor um hmm i don't know i would have to think about that a little bit uh, i will say i do love uh saint Teresa of avila uh and saint john of the cross is saint john of the cross the doctor i think he is yeah yeah um Teresa of avila i love those kind of the, the mystical writings that they write um but i mean i could say saint john, uh, saint augustine as well for both um oh but, therese of lisieux therese of lisieux she's, she's gotta be i mean maybe even more than ephraim yeah <laughs> I mean, she really is my girl. I love her little way. And I think it's profound and and eminently erudite. <laughs> awesome. Well, Read Story of a Soul. If you've never read, you want to read a doctor and it's it's easy enough to read, read Story of a Soul. Mm. Read it to your children. Amen. Well, thanks, Father Mike. Great to be with you. Likewise. Um, do you have any shout outs? Shout out to uh, David and Allie Richards, who um, whose wedding I did couple years ago and um they're fantastic david came into the church uh just like the year before his wedding and he is um he's he's uh, insatiable what do you call it insatiable no something like that he devours catholic things and the catholic stuff podcast as well awesome and uh i just had dinner some thai food with them the other day and remembered how delightful they are so God bless you. Love you guys. Look forward to the next time, huh? Awesome. I'd like to shout out Simon and Carly Turner. They are two parishioners of mine. They got married. Uh, Carly went through RCIA. And tragically, they're moving. Um, no, back, don't do it. Back to uh, North Carolina. That's where she's from. Um, to Durham, to Raleigh, because um, just want to be closer to family, support. What about Asheville? My brother got married in Asheville. Never heard of Asheville. Go on. And um, yeah, they're just great. Um, Simon Turner, greatest barber ever. He's cut. He's done most of my haircuts. Um, and they're good. I can attest to that. They dude. are good. Um, so what we're are you going to do? Guys. You're going to look like a I have no idea what I'm troglodyte. I'm going to look like a troglodyte. Um, anyways, love you guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Kylie listens. Simon thinks he's too cool to listen. Yeah, there's a um, lot of those out there. Anyhow. Catholic Stuff You Should Know, Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Email us, FaceTime us. Wave to us. Wave to us. I don't know. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. God bless you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.